order. Ms. Brooks, would you please call the roll? And please answer present if you are here. Ms. Laura Arguelles. Officer Kelly Dunn. Dr. Mary Ann Jones. Present. Mr. James Shea Keyes. Present. Mr. James L. McGee. Ms. Susan McIntyre. Present. Mr. Tom Purvis. Present. Mr. Enjiraji Tobias. Ms. Aviana Williams. Ms. Lisa Williams. Present. Mr. Errol Wisham. Present. Ms. Virginia Wright. Uh, board members, if you could uh, please speak into your mics because we are being recorded and we are being televised. So we would love to hear everything that you have to say. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to, uh, first of all, acknowledge uh, from Senator Leland Yee's office, Ms. Erin Keenan. Ms. Keenan. Thank you very much. We uh, know that Senator Yee is a strong advocate for mental health here, in, not only in San Francisco, but throughout the state of California. And we do appreciate him sending a representative to be here to witness these proceedings. Thank you, Ms. Keenan. I want to welcome you all to this public hearing on the impact of mental health budget cuts. Over the past 10 years, the severe reductions in inpatient psychiatric bed capacity and outpatient services has led to a crisis in San Francisco. These cuts are a great threat to public safety and expose the city to increasing costs in crime and homelessness while failing to provide humane treatment and the hope of recovery to residents with mental illness. When services are cut, we end up paying higher costs in our hospitals, streets, and jails. Tonight, we will hear from frontline physicians who have seen the reduction in beds and services and the increasing demand from clients. We shall also hear from an officer from the San Francisco Police Department who will speak on the impact of inadequate psychiatric inpatient capacity and community mental health services and the frequency of red alerts and diversions from San Francisco's General Hospital Psychiatric Emergency Room. Members from the Sheriff's Department will present regarding the impact on jails of inadequate psychiatric inpatient capacity and community mental health services, uh, the public defender's office and the district attorney's offices will speak about the success of the behavioral health court. We will hear from frontline advocates for people who are homeless and the impact of budget cuts on people without homes. We will hear from those who have walked the walk and will tell their stories here at this hearing this evening. Tonight, the mental the San Francisco Mental Health Board and the National Alliance on Mental Illness San Francisco convene this hearing to hear from those men and women who are on the front line and who can testify to this board regarding the impact of budget cuts on mental health services. The San Francisco Mental Health Board advocates for 
comprehensive mental health services, we report to the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor of San Francisco. We are currently have five open seats, three for family members and two for consumers. On the table, you will find uh, flyers about the board and how to apply if you're interested. NAMI is a passionate group of family members dedicated to informing, advocating, and educating others regarding mental health issues. Finally, we look forward to hearing from all of you here this evening. We want to hear from you about your experiences with mental health services, your concerns about budget cuts, and your ideas. I would like to first call to the microphone Dr. Cameron Kwanbeck, a, a psychiatrist from San Francisco General Hospital. Dr. Kwanbeck. Okay, thank you. Um, so I, I am a uh, acute psychiatrist, so I, I first want to uh, review the impact of reducing acute uh, psychiatric beds. And what I mean by acute beds are are beds that are, are staffed uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week by, by nursing staff and can provide uh, comprehensive care. So I did some research on what the impact would be. And I first turned to uh, a national organization I belong to, the Treatment Advocacy Center. And this organization uh, estimates that in order to provide the proper level of mental health care, for a population, you need 50 beds per 100,000 population. Uh, nationally, we don't do so bad. There's, there's 37 beds per 100,000 nationally. That's the national average. Uh, California does not fare so well. California's average is 17 beds per 100,000 population. And San Francisco, uh, at the current time, we have 15 beds per 100,000 population, so a little bit lower than California's <clears throat> national average. And these 15 beds are divided uh, about half at the general and half at private facilities, which include uh, St. Francis, uh, Langley Porter, and CPMC. And this number is likely to drop in the future. <clears throat> so uh, I'm, a, I'm a simple, I like to make things simple and easy to understand. So the impact of reducing acute beds creates uh, what I like to call a bottleneck effect. And uh, as someone who's lived in California for the past 13 years in Los Angeles, uh, Sacramento, now the Bay Area, I encounter this on our highways all the time, okay? So uh, a bottleneck uh, on the highway is you have a car that's disabled, <clears throat> they pull over into a lane, uh, and you have cars backing up behind the bottleneck, uh, you have cars on the other side of the uh, uh, going opposite direction looking at what's going on. There's people, you know, seeing this, uh, this jam and they, they, they exit, take detours. And it's not good because it prevents people from going to where they want to go. It prevents the, the flow of traffic and, and uh, it's not a good thing. So <clears throat> I'm currently working uh, at the General. Uh, in PES, uh, which is which is the only devoted psychiatric emergency room in in San Francisco, and so who who we see at, at PES, these are these are predominantly patients who are who are brought in against their will by police involuntarily, 
because they're showing signs of mental illness and, and they are uh, either dangerous to themselves or others or can't care for themselves. So as a psychiatrist in PS, I feel like you know a, a police officer on the highway, you have your, your mentally ill uh, patients in need of treatment, but you have a bottleneck, you know, limited resources, so you're trying to uh, prevent uh, admissions to acute settings, trying to, to divert them, or admitting some patients who really need to be admitted. Uh, and so how do, how do we go about doing this in PES? So there are a number of ways to relieve the, the pressure in this bottleneck situation. Uh, the first is, is, is to, uh, you know, there's, there's limited beds. Uh, it, it's sometimes uh, expedient to, to get people back into the community. So they go back to where they came from. They're, they've been brought in, but they, they've stabilized for a day or two. They can go back where they, they came from. Um, but as a consequence, uh, I, I am not admitting people today who I would have admitted years ago. So the threshold for admission has gone way, way up. What else can you do? You, you can admit to a private hospital. Uh, but admitting to a private hospital can be challenging because private hospitals do not have the capacity to take care of our more, most severely uh, mentally ill patients. Uh, the county is set up to really handle the, the toughest cases. So that's, uh, that's an issue. And then there are times when PES is so full, the capacity is 24 patients, we need to go on condition red. And when that happens, uh, the charge nurse calls the police and says, uh, PES is too full, you need to bring uh, patients who you've detained to a medical ER. So you can imagine, and that's not a good situation either because you have patients who are you know, acutely psychotic, agitated, uh, mentally ill, in, in a, an ER set up to handle medical emergencies, so people with heart attacks, strokes. And, of course, the ER doctors uh, put a lot of pressure to get uh, these folks out of the emergency room. Uh, and finally, uh, to relieve this, this pressure, this bottleneck, when patients are admitted, the, uh, once they're doing better, once they've kind of stabilized a few days on medications, they're discharged, oftentimes uh, what some people might feel prematurely. So they haven't realized the full benefits and they leave the hospital uh, before they're really ready to go, probably. So you can, all these stopgap stop measures provide kind of limited, in the opinion of many, inadequate treatment, and it, and it seems to feed, and it feeds back into the, to the bottleneck and creates a revolving door pattern of acute service utilization. Um, now, I'm a forensic psychiatrist, so I, I've worked a lot in, in jails and, and state hospitals and, 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 and with people who've committed uh, crimes. And so the worst possible outcome of, of an inadequate community treatment is uh, the criminalization of severe mental illness. So when one of our patients ends up in jail, that is uh, really a treatment failure. And I want to uh, talk to you about uh, one case that I've been, uh, it's been called to my attention uh, by the, my colleagues at PES. And I'm going to call this patient Jason. That's not his real name, but I just want to use that. This is a 24-year-old African-American male with paranoid schizophrenia, which is a severe mental illness. And Jason, when he's not taking his medications, exhibits the following symptoms that lead to his uh, 
hospitalization. He has paranoid delusions. Delusions are fixed false beliefs. Jason, when he's off his medications, believes that he is being poisoned, that his food and water are being poisoned, he won't eat, uh, uh, and he's very troubled by this, and, and thinks that people, people are out to kill him. They want to hurt him. And you can imagine this creates a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety in Jason, and, and he acts aggressively. You know, if someone was trying to poison me, I, I would be aggressive as well. I want to protect myself. Now, when Jason is on medication, it's a whole different story. So once he gets in the hospital, gets on his medication, Jason is described by the psychiatrist as pleasant, engageable, enthusiastic, and self-motivated. So I, I, look, I reviewed Jason's records over the past two years, and this is his community treatment history. So over the past two years, he's been hospitalized 11 times with an average length of stay of two weeks. And I can tell you, two weeks is not uh, a very long time to stabilize somebody who's acutely psychotic and ill. It usually takes about a month to get somebody kind of fully uh, relieve their symptoms, have them fully appreciate the benefits of treatment. Um, and again, he's readmitted every time after he stops his medication. So he's off his medications for a week. The paranoia returns, the aggressive behavior returns, and he's brought back into the emergency room. Now, unfortunately, uh, his last hospitalization, which began last month, uh, Jason was, uh, became very uh, hot, uh, angry, paranoid, and assaulted two of our nursing staff. Uh, one of the nursing staff suffered a concussion, is out on disability. And now Jason uh, is, is in jail, charged with felony battery. Okay? And we have a wonderful system uh, at PES. We can look at how much a patient costs uh, over time. And two years of treatment for Jason cost uh, a quarter million dollars. So, and, and, you know, for what? I mean, it, 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 it was a failed treatment because now he's in jail and, you know, his life and the life of uh, people who tried to help him are adversely uh, affected. So now that Jason is in jail, uh, what, are, what are the consequences? So that is, the, that is the sound of more money going down the drain. <laughs> okay, because because once Jason uh, enters the criminal justice system, our county jail, uh, the finances change. Because when Jason's in the community, he he had Medi-Cal and Medicare. We could we could reimburse his treatment through this, these federal uh, entitlement programs. But once he enters that jail system, all all of his costs of care, all all of his, uh, the housing, the legal court costs, probation costs. Uh, all that comes out of the general county fund. So he's going to, it's going to be more expensive, more expenses uh, for Jason uh, in the system in the year, upcoming year. So this is very frustrating. You know, everybody's frustrated. I'm frustrated. Uh, uh, there is hope, though. Um, looking into the future, uh, I think, you know, with this recession, it, it's time to take a critical look at our mental health system and try to improve it, make it better. Um, I've been fortunate to be involved in a, <clears throat> in a statewide committee uh, that's comprised of uh, mental health administrators, uh, lobbyists, uh, clinicians, law enforcement attorneys, judges, consumers, 
uh, NAMIs heavily involved, family members. Uh, all people, you know, this, 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 this is occurring across the state, not, not just here in, in San Francisco. And people are getting together uh, and trying to figure out what we can do to improve uh, our patient, the care of our mentally ill uh, citizens in California. Just, just two things we're thinking about. And number one is, is, is if, if severe mental illness is a medical illness, then we should treat the two the same, the same way. As it exists now, it, it is much easier to treat somebody who's medically ill in the hospital than it is somebody who's mentally ill uh, in, in, a, in a mental facility. And back, I'm sorry to interrupt. Just if you can bring it to a close a little okay. bit in the next few minutes. Thanks. The, the, second, uh, the second issue is, is there is a law in the book called Laura's Law, which allows uh, us to provide intensive outpatient treatment. And this law, though passed several years ago, is only in effect in two of our counties. Uh, and it's not in place here in San Francisco counties. So this is something we're trying to expand throughout the state as well. <clears throat> so my take-home message is uh, there's a lot of problems with this system. You know, the people might be pointing fingers at each other. You know, the, you know, is it law enforcement's fault? Is it the psychiatrist's fault? Is you know, whose fault is this? You know, what, why are we having all these problems? I, I just want to conclude that <clears throat> the, the the system is broken. So the the mental health system is not struck is not modernized. It's not structured appropriately to to, to provide the best care for patients, and it, it will take uh, frontline people. Uh, the clinicians, law enforcement, judges, working with our policymakers to uh, improve the system and provide high-quality care for our mentally ill citizens. Thank you, Dr. Kwanbeck. Uh, do we have any questions from the uh, board for Dr. Kwanbeck? Dr. Marianne Jones? Um, I wonder, based on your professional experience and your analysis of the the data that you um, reviewed, um, what would you recommend to be the, the number of beds required to meet a minimum standard of care for the residents of San Francisco? Well, well um, you know, the, the national average uh, is 37, so it should be closer to the national average than 15 or even California's 17. So, you know, getting people, you know, getting people stabilized on medications is so important. I mean, someone can stay an additional week in the hospital, and it can be a night and day difference. So just that capacity to keep people on their meds longer, uh, it can make the difference between somebody, you know, leaving the hospital and saying, you know, these meds don't work, they're, they're, they're garbage, and, and, you know, they stayed an additional week, and... And they're, they're on their meds, and they continue with them, and they avoid rehospitalization uh, for a long period of time. Thank you. Um, Errol Wisham. Um, doctor, I worked in 7A, 7B, and 7C at uh, San Francisco General, and I noticed that there were always enough beds, it seemed to be. And I was just wondering, 
where does these statistics come from as far as in california seventeen to one hundred beds are needed in san francisco fifteen there are fifteen beds to one hundred that are needed and where do these i don't understand from working up there as a peer counselor i've seen patients come and go as a revolving door but i don't understand where the beds come from well the data is from the treatment advocacy center which is a national organization based out of washington dc and they're an organization devoted to improving treatment for the severely mentally ill so that's where i got that from the fifteen beds per hundred thousand i got when i called down to pes yesterday preparing for this talk and asked how many beds are currently available to admit to at the general at cpmc at langley porter so this is just kind of you know there's been reductions maybe john is john around can john answer that question dr ross would you like to step up to the mic please thank you just as to some numbers as of about five or six years ago san francisco general had roughly eighty four acute beds on the non-forensic beds those were on units seven a seven b seven c and six b in addition to the beds on the the jail psych unit also at that point cpmc had a unit i think about fifteen beds st francis had an inpatient unit langley porter of course up at UCSF had a unit and St. Luke's had a unit of I think at least 20 beds as well which we frequently could could admit to since that time we have cut down to 40 acute beds in San Francisco and if the action of the Board of Supervisors isn't sustained by the, the budget process will be down to 20 as of March 16th uh, plus a couple of step-down units in addition to that, the unit at St. Luke's has closed in the last few years, taking others out of the picture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to next call up Lieutenant Mark Solomon from the San Francisco Police Department. Thank you for joining us here this evening, Lieutenant Solomon. Thank you. Good evening. My apologies, I don't have a PowerPoint. <laughs> Currently, I'm assigned to the Field Operations Bureau, San Francisco Police Department at 850 Bryant Street, and I'm working with the homeless population in the city. And what I'm going to talk about tonight is not specific to the homeless population, but it will play a part. Over the past three years, uh, we have had budget cuts with regard to psychiatric services in our city. And this gradual has gradually increased on our workload because of the lack of services. Uh, right now we're averaging approximately 6,000 reports annually, which um, takes our officers off of the street for quite a bit of time. Uh, with regard to the homeless population, we currently have approximately 6,500. Three of the main problems dealing with the homeless are alcohol-related issues, drug-related issues, and the common denominator on homelessness, drugs, and alcohol is the mental illness. One of the problems our officers are um, dealing with is 
when they uh, 5150 an individual and they take them to either the hospital or private facility, the individuals are discharged quickly because it's mainly due to the alcohol or drugs. And what's really happening, the bottom line is, they're dealing from a mental illness. And when they're discharged, they're not together enough to go back to the hospital for further treatment. And what's happening is they're going right back to the street and they're engaging in the activity that's bringing this on from the onset. Uh, there's many stories that we have with regard to individuals that we deal with on the street. I will touch on one. We have one individual who likes to hang out at 9th and Howard at the old Mario Andretti gas station. He is a recidivist and habitual 5150. And to make the story short, over a long period of time, he's been 5150'd on numerous occasions. And what has happened is his activity now has turned criminal. And the last time that we responded out to deal with this individual, it became very violent. A police officer got hurt amongst the citizen who was trying to assist. And he, once again, he was 5150. And I feel that if he had received longer-term treatment, he wouldn't be criminalized for this. He would be treated appropriately. I feel that these budget cuts have exacerbated this problem. When the officers usually respond out on a 5150 call for service, it could be anywhere from one hour to four hours. And more often than not, prior to the officer finishing his report back at the station, this individual has already been released from services. Um, this makes it very difficult for everyone. Uh, another thing that we deal with is when the main hospitals are on red alert, we go to a private facility. And a lot of the private facilities feel that they are not equipped to handle some of the individuals that we bring in. Uh, therefore, again, making it very difficult. Um, we need more services, that's the bottom line. Um, I think we need to rethink this and reinstate our old budget and uh, bring these monies back so the appropriate services are provided to the individuals who are in need. That is all I have, and I thank you for the time. Lieutenant Solomon, thank you very much. Well said. Thank you. I'd like to call Carrie Gustafson from Jail Health Services, followed by Jennifer Johnson from the Public Defender's Office, and then Leslie Kogan from the District Attorney's Office. Hi. Um, as I'm sure everyone here suspects, jails are a harsh environment. Um, unfortunately for the mentally ill, it can be toxic. Uh, it's not at all conducive to treatment, and as has already been mentioned, it's very expensive. Um, I know this because I work for jail psychiatric services, um, and I would like to briefly address what we've seen occurring in the jails over the last couple of years. Um, first, we are treating more people. Second, the number of people entering the jails with a severe mental illness, a major affective or a psychotic disorder, has increased. Uh, but beyond that, the number of times jail psychiatric services staff members need to see people once they are in treatment has gone up. This is a pretty strong indicator that people are coming into the jails already suffering from mental health symptoms more and are requiring more care. Um, we have gone from about 49,900 units of service in 2007 up to 54,000 
600 units of service in 2009. That's an awful lot of contact in a situation where it shouldn't be occurring at all. Um, uh, Jennifer will be talking about the Behavioral Health Corp, but just as an aside to that, um, for people who are mentally ill and participating in the Behavioral Health Court, um, it are, it, um, they already have to wait between four and eight weeks um, for community placements. So they're just sitting in jail waiting for a place to go and for treatment. Um, and, of course, cuts in community programs are certain to make this worse. That's really all I had to say. Do we have any questions? Uh, yes, Mr. Martin. What, in other words, you're getting the overflow, is that? We treat people who come into the jail and are referred for mental health care. And what, to, can you, with the, with the, what the, uh, the doctor described as the bottleneck at San Francisco General, I take it you're getting a very uh, much increased flow of people into the jail? Yes. Uh, and and are you you under Leonard and Pastor Short? You can hold them for what 72 hours, or unless you fit. We don't hours. have an inpatient facility. They go to San Francisco General Hospital Ward 7L. And in other words, if they're violent, do you keep them? If they're violent, yeah. If they are danger to self, danger to others, or gravely disabled, they can be involuntarily hospitalized at General Hospital. Other than that, all treatment is voluntary, and yes, some of them are violent. But jail services, you roll them over to San Francisco General, or do you do you have to actually keep them because of the lack of beds over there? We we follow the law. We we 5150 people, and they're turned around much quicker. I, I believe I'd have to check the figures. But what happens is, if if there's an overflow, people aren't kept in the in the hospital as long, and they're kicked back out so they can take the next person that we're 5150. They go back to streets then, huh? No, they go back to the jail. Go back to jail. Yeah. Well, what is what is this increased number? What percent of your of your jail population then is are mentally ill? I would say between 15 and 20 percent. Mr. Martin, uh, we're going to let uh, Ms. Gustafson uh, take a seat, and we're going to bring up Ms. Jennifer Johnson. If you'd like, you can certainly continue uh, the conversation um, offline. Thank you. Ms. Johnson. Thank you, and thank you for having me. My name is Jennifer Johnson. I'm a deputy public defender, and I represent 100 seriously mentally ill clients in our behavioral health court. I've been part of the program since the planning stages, and I've really seen the evolution of our program. Um, most of my clients have felony charges, and they're facing state prison. About 75% of my clients have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. All of my clients are in behavioral health court and, in fact, in the criminal justice system because of untreated mental illness. If they had been treated, had access to proper treatment in the community, they wouldn't be in the jail. It's that simple. And this is not a problem that's going to get better. In fact, it's a problem that's likely to get worse. The state prison system is overcrowded and is releasing people back to the street. And there's been a change in the law so that people in state prison are serving less time. There's a huge number of people in state prison who have a major mental illness, and they will be on our streets. So this problem that we have is serious, and we should be expanding rather than contracting our services for this population. 
Behavioral Health Court has begun to reverse this ugly trend of people ending up in jails and prisons because they have a mental illness. And over the past few years, we've shown that with adequate treatment and proper treatment, people can recover, they can get out of the criminal justice system, and they can break the cycle that they have been in, which is psychiatric emergency services, the streets, the jail. And it continues unless we do something to break that cycle. Treatment is more efficient and cheaper than incarceration. There's just no other way to say it. I did choose my words very carefully because I said proper treatment. And that's really what this is about. In Behavioral Health Court, what we learned is that we're treating the whole person. We are treating people who have multiple social service needs. It's not about just treating the mental illness with medication. People have medical problems. They have child custody problems. They have drug addiction problems. And we need to treat all of these at once and not pick one and decide to treat it because then we're ignoring the others and it's simply not going to work. You can provide my, one of my clients with housing. If you do not provide that same client with access to medication, it's not going to work. You can provide one of my clients with access to medication. If you don't provide them with intensive case management services to help them, it's not going to work. You can provide my clients with intensive case management, and without housing, it's going to be a failure. There are core things that we need to address, and we need to address them all at once. Um, so San Francisco um, is actually one of the few mental health courts in the country. It's actually a national model, and we're quite proud of that. But that is adding as many evidence-based practices as we can to what we do. We, anytime we can, we use something that's been working in another community so we don't reinvent the wheel. And we've been very successful at adding those evidence-based practices to our program. I will say when we started, we didn't have any money. We didn't have a penny to start Behavioral Health Court. What we did was we tapped into existing mental health treatment services. And we learned, first of all, that we actually have great services in San Francisco, amazing services. We just don't have enough. And my clients weren't able to negotiate this complicated web of social services to get what they needed. So we found that we had something great. And what we were able to do is then apply for grants to get targeted money to places where we needed it. So we now do have some funding. Um, but we also created a system where we're referring people to permanent mental health treatment services. We don't have a parallel system of care that's attached to the court. It doesn't end when you're finished with your criminal justice issues. It continues. My clients can access treatment for as long as they want for the rest of their lives. And I think that is one of the keys to the reduction in recidivism and violence that our court has clearly shown. And Leslie Kogan's going to talk more about the numbers and the outcome data. Um, I feel that we have, um, for a long time, I think we've been setting our expectations a little bit too low for the people that we're serving. In Behavioral Health Court, we don't ask the question, um, actually, we don't tell people, well, this is what we think you can do because you have a major mental illness, you're capable of X, Y, Z. I think in the past that that's what's been done. And we don't tell our clients anything. What we do is we are asking them, 
What is it that you want to do? And how do we help you get there? We can't continue to ask this question unless we have a wide array of services to offer to address all the problems that people are facing. Not just you need housing, not just you need medication. That's too simple. It's a complex problem, but it's not intractable and it can be solved. We're doing it in behavioral health court and to take away with targeted budget cuts, to take away some of our services is going to really collapse the whole because it doesn't work that way. They're interdependent and they're all essential. Housing, um, medication, access to medication, supported employment, my clients work, we put them to work, and they're doing a phenomenal job getting their lives back. But people recover one at a time, and that's what we've done. It takes a lot. You focus on one person, but when we focus on that person and they get out of the criminal justice system, it's a permanent solution. This court is reducing violence. It's reducing recidivism. It's cost-effective. And over the long term, it's reducing both criminal justice dollars and mental health dollars. There's no downside that I can see. So my question is, if we know what works, why aren't we doing it? We can. We should. And that is what is going to help us all really solve this problem, because it can be solved. Thank you. Those are excellent, excellent points. And um, I'd like to um, ask if there are any questions. Uh, Ms. McIntyre? Excuse me, Ms. McIntyre, can you speak into the mic, please? You work for the behavioral court? Yes. Is that correct? Can you tell us? Justice court? Um, yes, they are completely separate. The community justice center is located in a particular location and it's meant to address social service needs of the population in that area. Uh, those clients, um, the clients that we are serving in behavioral health court have a much different, uh, have much more serious mental illness than the clients in the community justice center. All of my clients have an Axis One major mental illness. If they don't, they actually can't even get into the program. So we're focusing on the most acute, most, a term that I don't really like, but treatment resistant population in the community and the one that's really been cycling through the systems for many years. Community Justice Center is more local. Thank you. Is there another question? Um, yes, um, Ms. Milfrey. Absolutely. And I also think that it's important that people are treated right off the bat because I think the more times they have psychotic episodes, the more serious their mental illness can become. And I think a jail is a horrific place to get treatment. So 
yes, I think they would never end up in the criminal justice system if they had what they needed from the start. Thank you very much. Uh, we'd like to hear from Ms. Uh, Le Leslie Kogan. Thank Good you evening. for joining us this evening, and please feel free to talk into the mic. Oh, excuse me. Good evening. Um, California, as we know, has one of the highest recidivism rates in the whole entire country. A uh, San Francisco study conducted exclusively for Behavioral Health Court by Dale McNeil and Renee Binder called the effectiveness of mental health court for reducing criminal recidivism and violence showed that Behavioral Health Court has reduced the recidivism risk of recidivism and violence more than just jail alone. This was a peer-reviewed published study that was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. This study compared 172 behavioral health court clients to about 8,000 other clients similarly situated in jail who had mental disorders, who had similar mental disorders and that occurred at the same time. The controlling data was taken in consideration for criminal history, demographics, et cetera. A follow-up study after 18 months showed that the estimated risk of any new criminal charges was about 25% lower for clients who participated in behavioral health court. Additionally, the behavioral health court participants charged with new violent crimes was about 38% lower than that of comparable to detainees. 18 months after the participants graduated from Behavioral Health Court, the risk of any of them being charged with any new offense was 40% lower than the general population. Similarly, the risk of a Behavioral Health Court graduate being charged with a new violent crime was 54% lower. This is something that the district attorney's office does and can stand behind. This program works. It increases public safety and reduces recidivism. Cutting services and the budgets would put many San Franciscos at risk of harm to themselves and to others. This program is the highest level of supervision that you can find in the criminal justice system, including parole and probation. Behavioral Health Court won't work and can't work without the essential services we rely upon in the community every day to provide care to these clients. These services are the backbone and the success of our court, but more importantly, they are necessary for the clients to succeed. So their life isn't their mental illness, but their mental illness is a part of their life. So let's keep money in the programs and let's truly make the criminal justice system justice for all. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ms. Kogan, Ms. Kogan. Uh, do we have any uh, questions? Mr. Purvis? Yes. Um, are there a number of people that you could serve if you had more resources? Yes. We only currently take in-custody clients, 
and um, they are awaiting months now sometimes just to get into a program because of the cuts in the community services. So we are unable to even consider taking out-of-custody clients because we don't have the capacity to do that. Uh, do we have another question? And before I uh, take the next question, please, board members, pull the mic to your mouth and speak into the mouth, mic so you can be recorded for this uh, momentous event this evening. Uh, can we now hear from Mr. Martin? Yes. Uh, to, to what extent does the, uh, does the nature of the Lanterman Petra Short Act inhibit your activity? I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with that act. I'm just a criminal attorney. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Well, Lanterman Petra Short is the act under which uh, uh, a, a hearing is required within 72 hours for anybody who has a mental illness. And then, of course, what you do is if you send them to the mental health court, uh, then they come out of the normal court system. Oh, you're talking about um, people who might be having, like, civil commitments? Well, uh, I guess Jenny... Yeah, it's a, it's a different court. That's a civil proceeding that's separate from the criminal proceeding. And I personally don't um, staff that court. And it's not necessarily true that just because they have the hearing, their case will go away. I understand. But, but what, maybe I should get back to what you, what you said about sure. the, the importance of the behavioral health court. And you, do you have a, a bottleneck in terms of getting people into the... You, I think that's what you said in your testimony, is you have a bottleneck in getting people into the behavioral health court system, which takes them out of the criminal justice system, because it's a parallel system for the mentally ill. Correct. And have, have they been cut back in their ability to provide the guidance, the therapeutic community, and to what extent do they, do they have, a, have a access to the housing that we hear for the homeless and for their clients? Well, everything with all the budget cuts that are happening, the programs are taking fewer and fewer people. So people are staying in jail longer, so we can't get them into the community. There is currently wait lists for intensive case managers, and all of our clients have intensive case management. Um, most people need dual diagnosis services or stable housing in the community, and with social support services, Etc. So people literally are waiting months in jail in order for them to get any type of bed into a program that might be able to help treat them in the community. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I would now like to call Ms. Jennifer Friedenbach from the Coalition on Homelessness. Hi, good evening. Good evening. So um, thanks for asking me to speak tonight. Um, what I wanted to do was kind of talk a little bit different from what other folks were talking about in terms of the budget process and give people some ideas of how to get involved. And I wanted to start out a little bit first to just talk about the Coalition on Homelessness and our role. Um, I have been, uh, for the past 15 years, uh, working every year um, on budget work, budget justice work, on combing the budget and looking at um, what the cuts are, analyzing what the impacts would be, uh, looking for sa potential savings in the budget, either those expenditures are har that are harming people or expenditures that are wasteful, and trying to then 
shift those funds over to services for poor and homeless people, or, as is the case in most years, to stave off major cuts. For the past 15 years, whether there's been a surplus or a deficit, mental health services have been targeted, and they've been targeted for cuts. And there's a few different reasons for that. Uh, one of the issues is, is whenever the city's in a shortfall, uh, they're looking at those programs that receive general fund support. And they're looking at programs that don't have any licensing requirements or mandated spending through the voters or any of these other things that kind of tie their hands. So the, the city of San Francisco has about a $6 billion budget. And about $5 billion is basically spending that is scripted. They have to spend it because of either voter mandates or licensing, et cetera. So we have about a $1 billion that is called the discretionary fund. This year, what the uh, projected deficit is, is $522 million. So we're looking at a deficit that's more than half of the discretionary fund. What, is ha what happens in terms of the budget process is, is that it starts out um, at the departments, and the, they're given instructions by the mayor. So this year the mayor gave the department, each of the departments, including the Department of Public Health, um, uh, instruction to do a 20% cut and then plus a 10% contingency cut. But this is still gonna leave a $102 million shortfall, even if the departments do a full 30% cuts. So once you get into the Department of Public Health, once you kind of look at all the money that's not discretionary, you're left with primarily substance abuse treatment and, and mental health cuts. We're talking about behavioral health cuts. And so it gets highly targeted. The process this year is very different from previous years. What we're seeing this year is the Department of Public Health does not know what the revenues are going to be yet. They're, um, for the first time, uh, they're not clear on how much FMAP monies um, how many hospital fees they're going to get. There's a Medi-Cal waiver that needs to be extended. And so they actually have not presented their budget yet, which is very unusual. So typically by now they would have presented this budget um, to the mayor's office. So we don't know, but what if, if all that money comes in, and it's dependent on the Congress, let's just look at the FMAP money. So the Congress has to decide how much money they're going to put through in various bills. Then when it gets to the state, the state might want to suck up that money for its own deficit and not even give any of it to the county. So it's a pretty long process before we find out what's going to happen there. And then again, even if we do get all the money and the city's still short, uh, the Department of Public Health may be targeted. Um, in the Human Service Agency, there's been several cuts that have been proposed already. They are actually banking on the FMAP money and the federal money, presenting a budget, assuming that income's going to come in instead of waiting until they find out and they're still making pretty substantial cuts. Uh, they're looking at one of our shelters at 150 Otis that is due to close and be turned over to permanent housing. It's 59 beds. They're not gonna replace that. Um, they're basically trying to kill a housing rental subsidy for families by not allowing homeless families to get a housing subsidy again. They're doing major cuts to supportive housing. So these are the support, doesn't lose a housing unit, but it cuts the support services that the um, housing is providing for folks. And many of the buildings that are being targeted for this um, almost exclusively serve people with pretty severe uh, psychiatric illnesses. So although it's not going to cut a housing unit, the chance that it could 
increase homelessness and the individuals without the support services become homeless again, um, the likelihood of that happening is pretty high. Um, the when we're looking at the budget work um, from the coalition's perspective, it kind of intersects two areas of our work. Uh, one of our areas of work is, um, of course, the work when we're when we're doing the budget. We're also look, doing a lot of work around the civil rights of homeless people. And currently in San Francisco, um, homeless people get about 17,000 tickets or so a year simply for being too poor to afford a place to sleep. Um, from of course, from our perspective, um, those funds that are used for that kind of activity should be reallocated towards services for homeless people. So one of the things that we'll do in the budget process is, is that we'll look through the budget and we'll look at stuff like that. Um, we'll look at the expenditures that the district attorney is having in prosecuting homeless people in court. Or we're looking at other um, areas of the budget that, um, that are actually creating harm, um, where um, homeless people are actually having a more difficult time getting off the street. Um, whether it's they're being criminalized for their mental illness um, or something similar to that. Um, we also look a lot at uh, revenue um, and we look at, we, um, and actually I brought with me tonight, which I'll put on the table, um, a whole long list of, of a variety of different revenue items. And so these could be fees, of course. They could be um, new ideas for revenue that are creative. Um, where basically what we look at is try to have something that's going to be more progressive, that's going to um, allow for either folks that um, are getting loopholes and are not paying taxes or um, who can afford to pay more in order to um, stave off some of the cuts. Um, many of those have to go to the ballot. And so one of the big issues this year, because we're expecting a similar situation next year, is that um, we really need to get some revenue items on the November ballot or else we're going to be in a similar situation next year. Each year, as the city comes up with savings that are not harmful to people with mental illnesses, uh, we have fewer and fewer options as time goes on. So last year we had a pretty similar budget crisis. There were some one-time fixes. There was also a lot of cuts that were made in administration, for example. So as that gets slimmed down and slimmed down, we're not able to find as many of those kinds of solutions, and our list of alternative cuts gets smaller and smaller. We came up with about 76 million last year, um, and it's going to be a much shorter list this year and because they were implemented last year. So as, as that time goes on, the risk towards people with mental illnesses is much higher. We also um, have a lot of initiatives around trying to democratize the budget process. So in the process, um, we have the, the lion's share of the power is under the mayor, and the process for input is through the commissions. Um, but there's not a lot of things that happen at the commission in terms of changes to the budget or that kind of thing because they're really uh, beholden to the mayor under the executive branch, and they have to follow the mayor's instructions. So there's, there's a lot of ideas around trying to change the budget process so that it's more democratic, so there's a more equal power between the legislative and the executive branch. For example, um, the mayor has spending authority, so if we're able to get programs restored, the mayor can still turn around and has in the past then not funded those programs, and they end up being a cut anyway. So this is something that we see a lot, and we want to make sure that there's a little bit more balance so you don't have sort of a... Um, you know, an, an, an out-of-whack system um, where 
um, the Board of Supervisors, which is where most of the budget remedies happen. So when the budget comes from the mayor, June 1st it goes to the Board of Supervisors. Um, the Board of Supervisors currently can take money out of the budget and then put money back in to stave off some of the cuts. And um, and so if we we have a process where they put it back in and then the mayor takes it back out again later, um, it doesn't end up working in terms of trying to stave off the mental health cuts. From our perspective, we, um, over time, like I had said in the beginning, we'd seen all these major cuts to mental health. And I mean, I think if you go way back, um, you're looking at the original huge numbers of people with mental illnesses on the streets um, in the early 80s due to the um, elimination of disability benefits at the federal level and the process of people having to get back on um, disability and folks with psychiatric illnesses having a much tougher time doing that. So folks who were in boarding cares, et cetera, that's when we saw that huge presence of people with mental illnesses on the streets. Um, but that's really intersected with a huge cut to housing. So we had our housing budget cut federally about 74%. And then over time, of course, in San Francisco, we had realignment. And then we lost a lot of funding through that. We also lost our boarding care facilities, more than half of them now. And we've also, because of the um, shrinking of resources, our stays in residential care facilities has gotten much shorter. And so that's what you're hearing today is the result of all these pressures. So we have a very malnourished mental health system that isn't anywhere near able to meet the need. Not anywhere near. And we haven't had a, any data coming out in San Francisco. Um, the last time was probably about 14 years ago. Uh, there, at that time, there was 18,000 people with mental illnesses in San Francisco that were untreated, that needed mental health treatment and were unable to access it. And we can only expect that since that time, given the high level of cuts, that that number's only gotten stronger. So as a result in San Francisco, we have a system that's very reliant on the high-end care, either on the jails, which is mentioned, but also on the 5150s. So most people's first experience with the mental health system is going in handcuffs to lockdown and getting 5150, which is not a positive way to engage people in the mental health treatment system. So from our perspective, we really need to push to build up the community-based mental health treatment to have a very flourishing and dynamic mental health system that's very diverse and able to meet the wide range of needs for people who suffer from mental illnesses. Some of whom are without housing, most of whom of course have housing. Um, and in order to do that, we also need to be pushing for revenue. We have to have a way to pay for this or else it's not gonna happen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Friedenbach. Do we have any questions for Ms. Friedenbach? Uh, yes, Ms. Uh, Hi. I don't know if this is a question or if you have access, but I've recently found out that there's been a director from, from Department of Health, from Dr. Katz, to the residential treatment facilities saying that they can no longer ever accept a repeat client so that if a person fails, they cannot go back. And have you heard anything about this? You know, I haven't, but the, you know, the, the, the residential treatment programs are getting targeted through the RFP process, which also kind of makes it difficult to fight. So we know that they're going to have less money 
and on the bid some of the programs are not going to get the ones with the lower scores are probably not going to get renewed and we may lose some residential facilities that way um, and if the monies from the feds don't come through um, we're sure that the residential facilities are going to be targeted and so I haven't heard that and I would be surprised if that's happened but um, it may be an indicator um, of these these things to come Thank you for the question, Ms. Milfay, and uh, thank you very much, Ms. Friedenbach, for your expert testimony. You're welcome. Uh, would uh, Thomas Jefferson come to the microphone, uh, followed by uh, Annette Robinson? Mr. Jefferson, thank you very much for uh, coming to speak with us this evening. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I just want to touch on the base, on the base of uh, what was said here tonight, especially some of the things that uh, uh, Jennifer Johnson said, who was my attorney. I'm presently uh, a client of VAC uh, and, and a member of uh, 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 Citywide. Um, and some of the things that were said here tonight, uh, some of the things I have uh, received, uh, such as uh, being able to go to a long-term uh, treatment program, and which now some of these places are being threatened on to being cut because of the, bun, the money or whatever. And um, mm -hmm. I think today, if, if I hadn't had the access that was available to me, what they were talking about, then I wouldn't be able to stand here today. Um, I do suffer from uh, schizophrenic. Um, and with the doctor, like the doctor said, with long-term treatment, I was able to, uh, to, uh, to better myself and to be able to go out in the community and, uh, and, and make some drastic changes in my life. Uh, I'm able to uh, obtain a job and hold a job at this point. And um, there have been times to where uh, I didn't have a clue where to go get the treatment at because I didn't know where it was available to. And that's what's happening now. People don't know where to go get it at. So, therefore, they've been pushed out into the streets or into the jail system. Uh, and it happened been for behavioral health court, I'd truly be shepherded into the system. Um, yeah. And I say did a lot more of those things than me, like she was some of our programs. Them things are needed, man, most desperately. Because if it happened for me, if I hadn't been able to go to one, which was a Center for Recovery, which was a dual diagnosis of a program to deal with both my addiction, the mental health and my drug addiction, that I don't know where I would have been. I'd probably been in prison somewhere. Um, and it has allowed me the opportunity to, like, like I said, make many changes. And I also, too, uh, a representative of Nandi, to who I go out to various places and, and, and get rid of some of those stigmas about the people that suffer from mental health. You know, a lot of people, they think we monsters or whatever, whatever, right? that we're some bad people. Hadn't had my mental health been treated earlier, early on, that uh, who knows where my life might have turned. You know, I might have been president. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, did, uh, but, um, no, really, sorry, no, seriously, did, um, you know, because early on, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty young, I'm from 52 years old. You know, it wasn't detecting until I was like almost an, an adult. You know, so I had to go through a lot of things. I had to suffer homelessness. I had to uh, be alienated from my family because of my mental health. Uh, and it wasn't because of drugs, it was because I was suffering from mental health, a disorder I had. Um, and my family background, we, it wasn't unheard of to put our business out in the streets. You know, we wouldn't discuss that. So it went, it went untreated for real. Um, and the only way I did receive it was to, I had to go to jail in order to get it, you know. Um, 
And that's what's really happening now. If you if they don't go to jail, they really don't get the treatment because the places are being cut. Citywide places like Citywide, Mission Mental Health, uh, South Dollar Market, uh, those places are being taken away. And the money's being taken away from some of the programs in there to where they can't go get no help or to go get the medication they might need, which I need. Because if I don't get my medication, it's, it's all bad for me. I had recently had a relapse because uh, uh, I had stopped taking my medication. It's very important for me to take it. You know, um, I just think some of those programs that's being cut, that they might have taken the money from, it's so much need. Those interns and the connections she's talking about, I was surrounded with a group of people that, uh, that took control of my life until I was able to take control of myself. So those, 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 uh, doctors, those nurses, and those, uh, uh, counselors and case managers, though they, they're so much needed. You know, and they need the money. That's what it's all about, that money, to be able to provide the services they need that I needed. You know, um, did I, did I, if I had a choice, I would say to, to have a, a program. A program to when they do leave the jail or housing like she was talking about, when I do leave that jail system, I have a house to go to or, or, um, and a place to go to when I do get to house, like citywide. I can go to citywide daily and be surrounded with some people that know where I'm coming from and understand me. And I don't have to be in the streets <laughs> walking around Morgan Street lost. You know, I can go where people understand me. And, uh, I think that's really important to be able to have places like that. Um, I don't, I don't know what else to say that, that I, I had so much ever needed, you know. Uh, I, I'm in a position now to where, you know, uh, I can, like, do whatever I needed to do to maintain a stable life, you know. And it due to, to uh, me and having a place to go to get the proper treatment that I needed. I have a, I have a, I have a wonderful case manager. Oh, without her and my, my psychiatrist, I don't know. <laughs> Those little people take on some of my stuff, man, that I don't know, you know, and, and, and that's what I needed, you know, to so have a place to go to where I can just be heard, you know, and not be misunderstood, you know. Um, that's about it, really. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. Uh, Mr. Jefferson? Mr. Jefferson? Yes. Uh, would you care to take one or two questions from um, some of our board members? Sure. Uh, do we have any questions from the board? Uh, seeing none, Mr. Jefferson, thank you very, very much for coming up and giving us a look into uh, what it takes. Ms. Robinson? Ms. Robinson, thank you very much for being with us. Please oh, feel free thank to you speak for, the microphone. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Annette Robinson, and I'm 32 years old. Um, I am currently a resident here in San Francisco. I'm not originally from here. And I don't have statistics or anything else um, to give you besides what I have experienced and um, what, I have, what I have overcome through the help um, of all the services that have been provided to me since I've been here. And the only reason that, um, the reason that I'm here in San Francisco to this day is because um, in 2006, I, my life had taken a turn for 
to me right to me when I look back for the worst. And yes, I have been I do have a criminal history before this time had come and um at that point I, I did I had no idea that I was that I had any type of mental disorder or or anything wrong with, you know, the way that you know what was going on through my mind. And so when I was arrested out here in San Francisco, um, when I went to jail, I don't think anybody knew how to help me. So when I went, when they sent me to Patton State Hospital, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and it was it was it was a shock to me because I have never seen myself as someone who did who could not control her own mind. And when I had when I was when I first got arrested, my mind was totally gone. I had I I did not I, I did not have any control over my thoughts. But with the psychiatric um, the psychiatric um, staff that was in the county jail out here in San Francisco, they did everything that they could to help me. They didn't carry me, but they helped me carry myself because they knew that even though I did have a problem inside, inside of my mind that I could not control myself without medication or the help of others, um, they knew that they, I don't, from the services that I get, from the people that I've encountered through Citywide, the Irish Center, um, Behavioral Health Court, they have all shown me an unconditional care about how my life turns out and where I go in my life and how they support me and how I can support myself. They, they don't, there are many people in CYD that I see that I don't know if they can carry themselves and they do that for them, but at the same time I do see them in certain areas where they know that a person can carry themselves and, and control what it is that they do in their lives and how they direct their lives, then they do that and their support. And out here I have nobody. I have I have no family. I'm from Monterey County and when I being arrested out here, even though I had nobody, is more than a blessing to me because had I been in Monterey County, I would never have had this opportunity at all. I would not have had the services. I would not have had the people that care about me, even though they're not my family. They're just people who are, you know, this is their job to help people, but that is not what I have that's not what I feel when they help me. When when they help me, I see people who truly care about another person's life and how they end up. And when I throughout this last year, I've been here since um, I've been out of jail since June 30th of 2008, and. That I've I've had many many sources out here help me, and I can't remember them all because <laughs> I've been through so many. But a lot of them, 
are probably no longer available. And it's unfortunate because even though right now I am in a place where I do need help still, but I can, I, they have gotten, they have allowed me to get to a place where I can do things on my own. I can start to go back to work. I, I'm going to school now. They allow me, they don't, they don't keep me in a box. They allow me to make my own decisions in life. They make me, they allow me to, to do what it is that I feel will make me happy and make me comfortable with where I'm going in my life. And if these services and these people are not, you know, if the money is not there to help them help me, then my life would probably be going down a totally different direction, somewhere where I know I would never want to be, and somewhere I know where I cannot be happy or ever have what I'm going towards now. So I, I, like, I don't know what else to say. There's so much, <laughs> but... <laughs> Ms. Robinson. Thank you so much for sharing with us on how services can help a person to feel comfortable with themselves to be able to continue on in life here in San Francisco. Yes. Your testimony was well deserved Thank and you. well received. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to go a little bit out of order here, and we're going to hear a statement from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, San Francisco, and its president, Mr. Gilford, or excuse me, Dr. Gifford Bryce Smith. James, thank you. Um, first up, as president of NAMI and, and uh, uh, colleagues of our planning for this commission, I want us to acknowledge the tremendous leadership and help from the Mental Health Board. Uh, both Helena Brook on my right and James Keyes on my left have been very helpful and wonderful leaders in this process along with the rest of the Mental Health Board. So I really appreciate their effort. We wouldn't be in this chamber tonight without them. So I want to thank everyone and give them a round of applause if you would. I'm thinking uh, James is looking pretty good up here in the diocese, and uh, he, uh, I guess he knows it. Uh, he's dressed to the nines. Um, for those of you who might be living in District 6, you have a chance to put him there permanently because he'll be running for office of supervisor in your district. So um, be uh, keeping a lookout for him on the, on the ballot. Back to uh, the serious topic at hand. All of us have just heard from frontline, very dedicated professionals who are day in and day out dealing with this very serious illness uh, condition uh, in the city. You've heard from physicians, you've heard from frontline police lieutenant, you've heard from the jail staff, you've heard from attorneys, and not too often do we hear public defenders and district attorneys arm in arm working together. This is pretty incredible. They're usually opposing on every uh, issue, and it was very impressive um, testimony. You also heard from experts on, on the homeless problem, all of them describing the fallout of inadequate options and inadequate services for people who live in the city. 
not talking about inmates, we're not talking about homeless, we're talking about people who live in this city who happen to be struggling with mental illness. They paint a very stark picture. Instead of treating mental illness, we're criminalizing mental illness. They should be in treatment, but they're in, once in a while, they're rescued in behavioral health. Otherwise, they're headed toward a life of imprisonment. One little statistic is that there's 2.4 million people in prison, in state and federal prisons in the country. The United States, a third of those are undiagnosed and untreated. So that's what we as a society are currently doing with the mental health problem in the United States, and I think San Francisco can do better. It really doesn't have to be that way. Jennifer Johnson has day in, day out, um, described in her own words better than I could how early intervention can keep folks from ever ending up in behavioral health court, early intervention and complete treatment. We know what works, is what Jennifer just said. Um, we know what it takes to get on the road to recovery. We just heard from two very, very brave individuals. I'm not sure I could do all that they've gone through in their life and then stand in a public session as intimidating as this venue and talk about how they got through behavioral health court and are now pursuing education, holding down a full-time job, and maintaining residence completely on their own and thanking the city of San Francisco for the services that they received along the way. All right, blows me away. So what do we need? We need adequate inpatient services. As Dr. Kwanbeck described very clearly, we probably need the right number of beds. That becomes a big wrangle around budget time. But let's think a little bit more about how he described it as a bottleneck in the entire system. It's not adequate to stay in the hospital for seven days or 10 days or two weeks with an acute psychotic illness and then go out before the medications have stabilized and before people are under full treatment. And this is not my opinion. This is science. You heard from a trained psychiatrist who deals with this every day. He wasn't just quoting an editorial opinion there. That is, in fact, the science. It can't be stabilized in, in under a month. We're sending people out, and not only are we sending them out too soon, but we're sending them out without adequate follow-up. No appointment, no case manager, no discharge follow-up whatsoever. Plus, we have some folks sitting there not able to go anywhere because there's no step-down residential unit, no ADU, adult um, unit that's less acute to receive them. So basically, the full continuum is not being honored. We're not dealing with the acute, we're not doing the follow-up, and we're not dealing with the full outpatient spectrum of services that are necessary. On the other hand, does it need to be that way? Both Ms. Robinson and Mr. Jefferson told us no. Get me the services, get them early, before my life is in and out of revolving doors of prison or jail, and I can become a stable and productive citizen. That isn't just 
a hope that's actually a reality, and you heard two examples of that. So, yes, we've got budget restraints, and yes, the city is asked to do the cutbacks that Jennifer just described to us, but the programs that we're asking for are actually cost-effective. Without adequate services, we're sending people with 5150 either into a medical hospital where they're not treated at all, they're given a little Valium or something to calm them down and sent them out into the streets where they become homeless, or we're sending a full-blown 5150 person out of county. And the budget dollars on what that costs are much, much higher than they would be if we did the right job here in San Francisco. So we lose money when we send them out of county. We lose money when we can't move patients through the system because there's inadequate follow-up. We lose money because of the revolving door of going in and out of jail and in and out of hospital 11 times in, in two years is the example of Jason that Dr. Bombat gave us. And the $250,000 that could have been spent more wisely on a case manager, one case manager, that would buy many case managers to follow up and make sure that the treatment stuck and that, the, that that individual did not go through 11 hospitalizations. With smarter care, we can save lives and make budget dollars work. Three specific suggestions that we would like the supervisors to take up seriously. Number one, not-for-profit hospitals have been enjoying tax benefits for years um, bestowed on them by the city and county, as well as the state, for their nonprofit status. We think there should be commensurate public accounting, and they should return to the community benefits informed of increased services commensurate with the tax breaks that they receive. So the example that you heard about St. Luke's closes, um, no more beds, and yet um, the Cal Pacific that, that owns that facility now is not held accountable for the fact that there are much fewer beds um, available for all citizens in California as a result of that closing. In Chicago, the city and county took on this issue, this nonprofit issue, and was successful in getting funds diverted into mental health programs. We should pursue that. It worked in Chicago. I'm not sure why it wouldn't work here. Also, as a matter of city and county policy, we should be providing the full continuum of psychiatric services, acute, subacute, community-based treatment programs, the full continuum. This is what science tells us is the right way to deal with it. This is what any medical physician will tell you. This is what any psychiatrist will tell you is the right way to deal with it. Why can't we hold our own public policy and the health department accountable for providing a complete continuum of care? And lastly, we've heard from everyone who testified tonight that there are inadequate services now. We can use that 15 beds per 100,000 uh, number, or we can use any other, we should really um, demand that the city commission a gap analysis and an investment plan to get us there. At NAMI, we're really not interested in wrangling and, and yelling and going through budget crisis um, telethons. We really would like to plan in a more thoughtful, long-term way what does it take to be 
um, providing the best, or at least adequate, as the use of word that Obama used today to describe what he would like to see for health care, at least adequate health care for the United States citizens. And with a public-private partnership and a commission moving toward uh, finding the right balance in investment and providing services and supervisor leadership, we can demonstrate and all be proud of those San Francisco values that we all hold so clear, so close. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Boyce Smith. Uh, I would now like to thank all of you who have spoken so very well about these issues, and now it's time to hear from you, the public. This is your opportunity to come up and speak regarding uh, anything that you've heard this evening. Uh, please come up to the microphone and state your name clearly and your organization, if applicable. You will have three minutes in which to make your comment. Please raise your hand if you need a comment card, and the staff will provide one for you. Um, Yes. Good evening, uh, board members, members of the community. My name is Misha Moray-Visari. I am the director of Education Not Incarceration, and on my second term as a city commissioner on MOOC, the Marijuana Offenses Oversight Committee. I am also a mental health patient in San Francisco. Um, due to the killing of my only child eight years ago by SFPD at the Matrion Theater. Um, my child's name was Idris Telly. He was my only child. And ever since I was, I've suffered from uh, acute uh, suicidal disorder. And I have uh, two prior uh, attempts. But now, thanks for my wonderful therapist at the Tau Seast Geriatric Center, which is just at the limit of the Mission and the Excelsior, I no longer have to face the shame and the terror of a 5150 of a psychiatric intervention, which means that there is no police deployment, there is no hospital bed for three days with the apparatus of meds and the tremendous expenditure that it takes. Uh, instead, I'm, I go to, my, to see my therapist once a month, once a week. And thank you, by the way, to the chair of this commission, to James Keyes, for successfully uh, fighting the closure of the Southeast Geriatric Center, which is the only facility for seniors with mental health uh, problems or issues for uh, half of the city of San Francisco. I'm also here to uh, demonstrate my grave concern about what will happen to the homeless who that no seat, no lie ordinance passed that Chief Gascon wants to propose to the Board of Supervisors. Um, 
it just terrifies me to think that people suffering from hypothermia or just simply beating to their own drum because they self-medicate or even do not self-medicate would, would be penalized for not getting up quick enough. Put on top of that the possibility of the TASER contract that may be approved for SFPD. We are talking about being zapped to death for not getting up fast enough. I really urge respectfully this commission to consider all the in and outs of what the no lie, no set ordinance compounded with the Tazen contract can do to the poor, the black, the brown, the self-medicated or not on the street of San Francisco. Thank you very much. Thank you. Florence Fee. Florence Fee. Right, thank you very much, Mr. Keith. My name is Florence Fee. Um, I'm a family member. I have had two uh, siblings with serious mental illness. I'm also a longtime uh, mental health advocate, formerly on the board of directors of NAMI of San Francisco. Two years ago, I formed my, uh, with some colleagues, a new organization called No Health Without Mental Health. Um, as president and founder of No Health Without Mental Health, I want to bring our new organization, because we are a new startup venture, but we all come from many years of mental health advocacy. We're highly experienced in, in this field. Um, our mission is to eliminate the stigma of mental illness. Our target is the general public. We feel very strongly that nothing is ever going to change until the general public is behind, fully understands these issues and gets, gets behind it. I think it's, it's a real shame that there are no members of the Board of Supervisors here, or, or members of the mayor's office, or even any politicians. But we all know that politicians uh, the majority are followers, not leaders. And the general public is who they listen to. Um, until the issue of mental health and the stigma that surrounds it is eliminated and the general public understands this issue, we will continue to battle these same issues of budgets, uh, sufficient housing, sufficient community facilities, notwithstanding the wonderful people here in San Francisco who are de dedicating themselves in such a marvelous way to the mentally ill. But again, all of you here in this room know that the shocking fact that two-thirds of people in this country that have mental disorders get no treatment at all. That's coming from WHO, World Health Organization, and the National Institute of Mental Health. Two-thirds. That's so shocking. Uh, do we have any other physical, medical illness where two-thirds of the people are getting no treatment at all? Why is this? It's because of the stigma that surrounds uh, mental illness. Our organization, No Health Without Mental Health, firmly believes that a new approach has to be taken to stigma. 
we have to get the public involved in a way that makes mental illness relevant to them that makes mental illness a community issue and the way we think to do that is to get across to the public this point that again is endorsed by NIMH and WHO that as our organization title says there is no health without mental health mental medical health mental health is an integral component of overall health okay WHO has spoken about the interactions between mental health conditions and other health conditions they're widespread they're complex and they can occur any time during a life course to any of us Ms. Fee, thank you very much for your public comment we have to respect the three minute limit and move on okay thank you very much for your time and again www.nhmh.org thank you thank you Ms. Fee Dr. Flavio Casoy Please state your name just in case I didn't say it correctly. No, you said it correctly. My name is Dr. Flavio Casoy. Thank you for holding this hearing, members of NAMI of the Mental Health Board of San Francisco. We need the leadership that you're providing to fight these cuts and make sure that we have services in the city for the most vulnerable population that lives here in the city. I'm a resident physician at the general, you know, the cadre of junior doctors who do the day-to-day clinical work for all sorts of patients, psychiatric, medical, pediatric at the general. I particularly am in psychiatry. And there's lots to talk about on the impact of these cuts. Lots to talk about. But I want to focus on two things primarily. First, I'm incredibly perplexed at the moment because the funding for the unit on the seventh floor has been restored by the Board of Supervisors. And I appreciate the testimony from Ms. Friedenbach earlier who says that the ball lies in the mayor's court. We know that it's cost-effective. We know that it's scientifically proven. This is not a policy problem. This is not a fiscal problem. This is a political problem. It's a human rights problem. And frankly, it's a backbone problem on the part of the mayor's office, on the part of the senior clinical leadership of the hospital, the Department of Public Health. And I'm glad that this forum is in place for us to really promote this, to let the public know. One thing that will happen if these cuts go through on March 11th at the seventh floor of the hospital is we'll reduce the number of acute beds from 42 to 21, and we'll have 42 sub-acute beds, that is, people essentially waiting for a placement. We'll reduce the number of nursing staff. And why does that matter? There has been a relative decrease in the number of assaults at the general over the course of the last several years. But there has been a slight increase in the number of assaults when we went from 84 acute beds to 42. I'm afraid, as someone who's there all the time, that we'll have a hyper-acute unit with much more assaults. It'll be more dangerous for staff, for physicians, most particularly for patients. I've witnessed several patient-on-patient assaults, and it's devastating. If it's too dangerous to work, it's most certainly not a therapeutic environment for the patients to improve. And this is critically, critically important. The mayor's office will say, 
look at the, uh, the Department of Psychiatry's utilization review policies, look at the medical data, you'll see that there's only 21 acute patients, and there's 40 or so administrative patients as categorized by medical. This is their justification of why it's okay to reduce services, why it's okay to cut nursing staff, why it's okay to create the possible uh, of a hyperacute unit, and I'm finishing now. Um, the medical data of what is an acute patient and what is an administrative patient has no correlation of, uh, of what is acute and what is subacute clinically. Uh, we have a lot of administrative patients who take a lot of physician time and nursing time. Uh, so it's not a good justification on the part of the mayor's office. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. John Rouse. Thank you. I'd just like to uh, reinforce what my colleagues have said, and also the point from the, uh, the Coalition on Homelessness. Uh, what we've seen in the last few years is sort of a piecemeal dismantling of an integrated system of care. And it's not possible to make this kind of care for the seriously mentally ill work in little bits. We have to have a smooth flow between, uh, well, I, my perspective, since I work in psych emergency, I see people at that starting point when they're brought in on, in handcuffs on a 5150. It's not the way we like to see people meet the mental health system, but for many people it's the unfortunate reality. We have to work smoothly with the inpatient units, with the outpatient providers, intensive case managers, outpatient clinicians, and so on, and with the residential programs and the long-term uh, residents. If any of those things are missing, if they don't have capacity, the whole system fails to work. People back up. They sit on the inpatient units because there are no places to send them to. They sit in PES. Our current record is 120 hours. That's five days. And we had 5250 hearings in psych emergency for people who we had determined four and a half days before needed an inpatient admission, and they're still with us four days later. Um, so that's a, I almost call that a fluid dynamics problem. That's a problem where we haven't realized the flow and how many subacute beds you need to take the flow out of the inpatient unit so that the inpatient unit can take people efficiently. When we start dismantling things piecemeal like this, nothing works very well. And it's costing us money that we can't afford and it's denying care to the people who desperately need it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Rowe. Julian Hartzell. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak. Uh, I've written a speech, and I don't know how much uh, I want to give of it. Um, um, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about my, my previous history in, uh, in, in, in regard to my psychology and my, in regard to my difficulties. Um, Forty years ago, I came from Iowa City uh, in the PhD program in drama um, and wound up almost immediately in a mental hospital in San Francisco, unable to read, write, type, or talk. Since then, 
um, it's been, a, as you can imagine, it's been a very long, very long, up, 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 little by little climbing, let's call it Jacob's Ladder, okay? And I, I, and I don't mean to demean um, the, uh, the, intense, the intensiveness of the psychiatric profession in terms of there possibly being an, uh, a, a, a disconnect between the psyche and spirit. I'm sure that's not, a, not, not the case here. But in any case, um, what I have to talk about right now is, uh, first of all, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an email that I wrote um, to a couple of people who work for Fox News, which I deeply respect, by the way. And I'm, and then just so you know, I, I'm, I have a, uh, a tentative correspondence with Carl Rove, who, by the way, uh, responded to an, to an essay that I sent to him. He said, thank you, Mr. Hartzell, for sending me your very strong essay. Okay. Now, I can go on. I'm, I'm publishing a book, but that's, that's, that's irrelevant right now. Anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I have my glasses, but I'm not going to get them out here just for the sake of speeding this up, speeding this up. Okay, dear Bill and Monica, here's a really, really, really tough, tough question for you two to ponder a whole lot. And as you two wonderful people ponder it, so will I again as I am preparing this little essay to read at San Francisco City Hall this coming Thursday where mental health budget cuts will be discussed. It's a question reasonable people, if they wrestle with it, cannot, I believe, reasonably disagree. Is, um, the question is, is America's money more important than America's meaning? Pardon me while I go to my kitchen. I wrote this at midnight. Pardon me while I go to my kitchen for a tall glass of H2O. Okay. I.E., in the budget debate here in San Francisco and in Washington, the question of what holds America most together are meaningful attributes, public and private, or are economic attributes, public and private? I don't think the country has really grappled with this question before, and at this juncture, and, and at, sorry, and at this juncture, um, in our and the world's history, where there are people, sometimes angry people, on both sides of the question, shall we have a go at it, at least in a pre preliminary fashion? Okay. Um, Mr. Hartzell, yes. thank you very much. Thank you. By the way, I have copies of the introduction to my book for, for all those of you who are interested in good literature. Uh, Mr. Charles McGregis, I'm, I'm sorry, the last name is a little... Mr. McGregis? Ms. Suzanne Killing. Hello, Suzanne. How are you? Good evening. I haven't Thank seen you, you in a long time. Speak. It's been a little while. Um, so my name is Suzanne Killing, and I have, I think, several different perspectives on the mental health system here. Um, I work as a psychiatric nurse practitioner in the Tenderloin with older adults with severe mental illness. That's my full-time job. I also, as a volunteer for NAMI, run a family support group that I've been doing for the last eight years for families and friends and loved ones of the mentally ill, and that meets weekly. And I also um, 
run a schizophrenia support group, and that's open to anyone with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder in the entire Bay Area, and we get people from the South Bay and the North Bay because there's nothing like it. So I feel like I have a good perspective on a lot of, from a lot of different um, ways. And, you know, I'm gravely concerned about what's happening to our mental health system. I used to really feel proud to work for the San Francisco public health system because I came from other community health places, but the priorities in the last few years are really concerning me, and I just wanted to bring to the attention of all of you that not only are we having these budget cuts that are coming down the pike, but there's another agenda happening, and that is you know, really the dismantling of the mental health system. The focus right now is on primary care and on integrating mental health with primary care, which is a wonderful idea, and we're all for that. However, we all know that people with serious mental illness don't make it into primary care. And the plan right now that's being rolled out is they're going to take staff from the mental health clinics into the primary care clinics, call them behaviorists, and have them do 15-minute interventions with people, you know, to help, you know, help them with obesity, help them with, you know, anxiety, 15-minute interventions. And we all know this is not the population I serve, and this is not going to serve them. Yet they're taking our staff away that's already been cut, you know, to do this kind of work. And so I, I think Healthy San Francisco is a wonderful idea. I'm really concerned that it's a priority at this very difficult financial time. Um, it's, it's a hard financial time, and I think everyone deserves to have health care, and I would really like to see that. I don't want it to be on the backs of the poor mentally ill. And I, I'm the person that has to look people in the face, and I go to these family groups, and people have families that are crying and asking me why there isn't this and why there isn't that. And... I do everything I can to help them access what there is, um, but there's a lot of pain and suffering beyond the person who suffers from the mental illness, and I just wanted to make sure that we really understand this as a community and um, ask for your help as this agenda goes forward, because it is going forward. Thank you very much, Ms. Kelly. You do a great work in the community, and I'm very, very happy to see some of the results that uh, occur from your work. Uh, next, we'd like to hear from uh, Piers McKenzie. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Piers McKenzie, and um, I'm just here um, capacity of uh, representing my daughter who was taken um, ill about six years ago. She was diagnosed, she was duly diagnosed and she went, she was 51, 50, um, taken to the general hospital into the psych ward and from there after a couple of weeks she went into the then San Francisco Mental Health Rehab Facility which is next door to the general hospital. From what I remember at the time, um, the general hospital had about 200 to 250 beds in the psych wards. I think that's about correct. At the time, um, my daughter went into the rehab facility. Uh, the city tried to close the rehab facility, and one of the things we heard a great deal was that many patients, instead of being looked after in the city, were being sent out of the county at great expense. I come here this evening and 
one of the things which brought me here was that I learned that the beds in the general hospital are being further reduced. And I just simply don't understand that. Um, at the time, six years ago, we learned that it cost the city more to send patients out of county rather than treat them in, in the city. Um, and that's just my main concern. I, I didn't have a great deal of information before I came this evening, but I just can't understand the humane and fiscal thinking which persists in, in, um, uh, in reducing the, the beds to the, um, those who are 5150 in the city and sending them out of the county. And I just finished by saying that if my daughter, six years ago she was taken ill, if it happened to her today, and there's no place for her in the general hospital, what would happen to her? Because we couldn't send her out of the county, and if we didn't have her at home, which is out of the question, then she'd have nowhere to go. And now I'm happy to say that because of the um, facilities she had six years ago, she has um, done very well, and she's le leading a normal life, um, is getting married, and so on and so forth, so we're very grateful. But my real concern is, what would have happened to her today, and what happens to everyone else in that situation, especially among the poor and underprivileged sections of this population, what happened to them today in, in, view, of the, in view of these cuts? It's, I, I find it astonishing and shocking, extremely depressing. And I hope that the Commission is going to do all it can to, um, uh, to, to avoid, prevent some of these cuts taking place. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. McKenzie. Uh, can we hear from Dr. Ralph Fenn, please? Uh, good evening. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist at Family Service Agency, and one of the clientele that I serve are the chronically mentally ill in the board and care homes. And as I've uh, learned about the system, I've been very impressed with it, and I've agreed to become a co-president of the Residential Care Association of uh, San Francisco. Uh, this association represents 550 beds in about uh, 70 facilities. Most of them are uh, family homes having six to eight clients and uh, provide a, a, a family atmosphere, uh, the opposite of uh, the uh, really Napa and uh, 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 where they came from before. Um, there used to be 1,200 beds in the system, and now there's 550, and it's going down rapidly. The uh, reimbursements have not kept up with inflation, particularly real estate costs. Any new homes uh, cannot pay mortgages, so there are no new homes. Uh, there are no profits in this industry, and the homes are only closing. I uh, related uh, to Dr. Kwanbeck's comment about bottlenecks. He really talked about the bottleneck going in and getting care. There's also a bottleneck coming out. There aren't enough beds, especially these very cost-effective step-down beds. Uh, the homes provide medication administration, as well as board and care, of course. They also provide 24-7 staffing. And, and the uh, a you know, small family uh, atmosphere, which is uh, really heartening to see. They continue to uh, shrink 
As I said, the, the funding has cut down their numbers by more than half already, and uh, uh, more cuts would only um, be uh, a false economy because it costs the city $15 a day uh, through the patch monies, the rest being covered by Social Security disability income from the clients. This is extremely cost-effective and saves, uh, obviously, a tremendous amount of money uh, avoiding higher level of care. Uh, for these clients. So um, it's a, a, a very valuable part of the continuity of care uh, that uh, I hope um, everyone will support when they have an opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ms. Nancy Gran. Good evening. My name is Nancy Gran. I'm the co-president of Dr. Penn for the Board and Care Homes Association of San Francisco. I just want to reiterate his statement that as of right now, uh, we are only 65 homes um, existing, and we home and we took care of. We're taking care of 500 plus. Uh, clients or patients under our, our care. Um, we are a very small association or organization that I don't even know if uh, the city know us, but uh, we are very, uh, we're, we're working very closely with all the, um, the agencies that spoke this afternoon, I mean tonight. Uh, we are familiar with the 5150. Uh, we are familiar with going, the people, clients going back and forth to the hospital and back to the homes. Uh, what makes us, uh, I think, very unique and special to the people, to the mentally ill uh, clients is we try to give them a very home and family uh, environment to all of them that we cared for. Um, we, uh, we have 24-7 uh, service, despite of what we're getting from the city, and uh, our rent is only 961 a month. Uh, the 24-7 that we're providing for uh, is, uh, I mean, the money that we're getting is not even enough to give one single staff to take care of that. 24-7 service. What makes us very valuable is a really very uh, a close supervision to medic um, their medication and uh, their food, plus their uh, uh, cleanliness. We try very hard for them to be as healthy as uh, they can be hygiene-wise. So what I'm asking uh, the uh, San Francisco Mental Health Board and the NAMI is to please look at us and how, what we can provide for you or how we can help you before most of our people will close their business because it's not really uh, profit-making uh, uh, business. 
is mostly because of our compassion to the uh, mentally ill people. Because most of the, most of the people that are uh, operators also have mentally ill um, members of their family. Thank you. Thank you. Daniel Galhardo. Thank you for having me here. And, uh, my name is Daniel Galeardo. Um, unlike most people here, I'm pretty removed uh, from the whole mental health issue. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't volunteer, I don't participate in any organizations. Um, my brother-in-law has bipolar disease and until very recently I didn't really know much about it. Um, I didn't really, never really witnessed um, episodes. Um, um, and, but I did witness something recently, you know, one of the kindest persons I know, uh, one of the most normal people I knew, um, going into an episode, you know, a bipolar person becoming very manic, and um, it was probably one of the saddest moments of my life. And I would imagine most decision makers here, most board of directors, or, or you know, from the government part, might not have that type of experience. Um, and they probably cannot grasp what has happened. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm, I am pretty far removed. I just came here because my wife asked me to. Um, you know, I could be doing something else tonight. Um, probably I was going to leave early, but I decided to stay because my background, I'm a businessman. I have my own business. I studied business, went to business school and whatnot. And you know, one of the major points uh, here in the presentations tonight of people who are involved, you know, is just... There, there's also a numbers part to it. <laughs> and I don't understand, you know, how decision makers cannot see that there's a human cost to it, as well as a real pragmatic um, approach, you know, a very long-term solution where if we spend a little bit more today, if we try not to cut some costs today, we can save a whole lot more tomorrow. You know, to quote somebody who spoke earlier, uh, I believe this is an issue where reasonable people cannot reasonably reasonably disagree on. But unfortunately, uh, some reasonable people, reasonable decision makers, don't always have the personal experience to, you know, make their decisions based on. Um, you know, and if not the personal experience, at least I think they should at least look at the numbers. I mean, what is, you know, <laughs> what is physically more important for us to try to save $2 today, you know, by cutting costs on a certain program or you know, and then end up sending this person to jail where we have to spend money on the jail food, money on three guards to keep track of the person, you know, like number, um, money on a jail cell, money on maintenance. I mean, there's, there's so much money that is spent anytime you put somebody in a jail system where anybody don't take care of someone. And so much more, you know, money could be saved if people were just, if, if we just did the right thing. From a business perspective, we learn day on, day off that if businesses do the right things, they can have long-term profitability, long-term solutions, long-term. That's what Toyota did, and you know. But we, as a city, we don't see that sometimes. Thank you, Mr. Galhardo. Uh, very well said. This is exactly the reason that we are holding this hearing: is to make sure that those decision makers 
and the uh, mayor's office and the board of supervisors here, not only from those frontline workers, but you, the public, regarding the effects of cuts to mental health. Uh, we'd like to hear next from Ms. Mary-Kate Connor, please. Good evening. I'm very happy to, um, very happy that you all are holding this hearing. It's a very different environment than the majority of hearings that take place in this, in, in this chamber that deal with mental health because the majority of those hearings are about budget cuts. And having worked in San Francisco with homeless people who have psychiatric illness since 1988, I've watched the system dismantle itself and be dismantled pretty much every three to four years, each time a new administration comes in. And as both a provider and an advocate, I can tell you, I could give a history um, of what has happened in California since 1966 as a result of deinstitutionalization. And I also have very strong views on um, the legislative aspects of what you're talking about, including Laura's law. But as someone who started her own nonprofit, because I was very tired of what the public system and the Department of Public Health was not doing and was legislating illness based on financial, essentially whimsy, you can't tell us that there is no money in this city. There is a lot of money in this city. And we provide services to perhaps 100 people a year for as long as 10 years or however long they need it but the doctors that we use, the psychiatrists we use, volunteer their time. And we probably underpay our staff, um, which is fine. They're very devoted to what they do. So our cost per client per year is $3,500. Conversely, it costs $34,000 to incarcerate that same person in the San Francisco County Jail. Unfortunately, when people end up in behavioral health court, that's what tends to happen because behavioral health court will release people only to programs. There aren't enough program beds. People spend more time in jail and more money is spent incarcerating them because of the lack of facilities that are out there for people to go into. This isn't just true in this city, it's true nationally. And Mr. Keyes, I brought a report from uh, the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice statistics that cites, and I want you all to hear this, that it cites at this point, and this report was written in um, 2006, that 62% of every incarcerated population, 62% of people in jails, state prisons, federal prisons, and private facilities throughout the nation have a serious diagnosable mental illness. It is far greater than 10%. And that number has been rising exponentially every year since the data was kept. If you look at where it was 10 years ago and you look at where it is now, the only thing you can say is what our country's response is to the issue of a health a health issue and poverty, because if you're disabled, the possibility of being poor is perhaps a hundred times greater. So what this country has done is create a system that perpetuates the mass incarceration of people with mental illness, and this should frighten all of us. Thank you very much, Ms. Ms. Connor. Thank you very much, Ms. Connor. May we hear now from Dr. John Dorsey, please. 
First off, I am a consumer of mental health in the city of San Francisco, but now I have transferred about 1984 to the veterans' mental health. And I am proud to say that I am a veteran, and I would like to direct expressly to you, the president of NAMI, that we are going to be in for a shock in the next couple of years with 70,000 men coming back that are going to be in bad shape from fatigue, mental stress, and real mental health problems coming back to the United States after we evacuate Afghanistan and other places like that. And yet there's no, nothing has been prepared here in San Francisco. It's going to be just like when they came back from Vietnam. They slept in the streets. They got really sick. They were ignored. They wouldn't be allowed to be employed. There was an attitude in San Francisco that was just the opposite of what the world was going through. And they're doing that today with their blindfold on again. I really do not like to know that there is such a thing as the pink Air Force. I am United States Air Force Academy, original headquarters staff for the first two graduating classes, and I have spent time personally with the President of the United States at that facility when Mr. Ford was first President of the United States. I'm proud I'm a veteran, but I don't like to walk down the street and see a veteran with a, with a, a sleeping bag strapped to a wheelchair looking for a place to sleep at night. And that is, that is the basis of degradation that causes mental health and mental health stress of just surviving and no future in it. And I just want to leave it at that. Thank you very much. Um, our, uh, our last speaker is... Sorry, I, I wanted to acknowledge the valuable comments regarding veterans and the and this huge amount of post-traumatic stress disorder that we're going to witness. Uh, he's absolutely right. Um, I just wanted folks to know that NAMI does have a national um, contract with the Veterans Administration, but we're barely underway in terms of offering some of the joint uh, veterans and NAMI programs. So uh, he's absolutely right. We're, we're going to be in for it. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Uh, our last speaker this evening will be Chris, uh, a resident of San Francisco. Hi, um, my name is Chris, and I'm a resident of San Francisco. And um, I have a disabled family member <coughs> who is receiving Social Security benefits uh, that helps to pay for a bed and a group home here in the city. Um, I am the payee. And as a new recipient, she received a large back payment from Social Security. As payee, I'm trying to understand how to manage the money from Social Security um, as it has these confusing requirements that she must spend this money within a period of several months or lose benefits because then she would have too much money to receive benefits. Um, I was able to find out that um, San Francisco, the city of San Francisco, provides payee services for its clients. And as of four weeks ago, um, this, these services have been closed um, because of 
the staff has been overwhelmed. Um, and, uh, and so they're, they're no longer providing these payee services to new clients, and there is no waiting list. Um, I was so fortunate <coughs> that the person I talked to um, kind of slid me under the back door to speak to someone who she thought might be able to help me and answer my questions. That person, with her expertise and experience, um, was able to explain to me how I could uh, prepay rent and prepay medical expenses for this family member and spend down that money uh, without losing benefits. So I was very fortunate as a family member to have kind of slid in the back door to have gotten some key information that would, uh, that would ensure that federal dollars are not wasted, not lost, and that they're used to pay for life-saving housing for my family member in this city. And I wonder also about consumers who do not have access to payee services or other services from the city who lose federal benefits that um, are critical to provide housing and medical for themselves. So it just doesn't make sense to me um, that some cuts are actually costing us much more than the cuts themselves. That's all I had to say. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, I would like to uh, thank, uh, first of all, uh, Supervisor John Avalos for uh, sponsoring this hearing this evening. Uh, Supervisor Avalos has been uh, a strong advocate and a good friend to the Mental Health Board, uh, especially during the uh, budget season. He is the um, chair of the uh, budget committee for the city and county of San Francisco. Um, special thanks go out to uh, Dr. Cameron Kwanbeck, Lieutenant Mark Solomon, Ms. Carrie Gustafson, Jennifer Johnson, Leslie Kogan, Jennifer Friedenbach, Thomas Jefferson, Annette Robinson, Dr. Gifford Boyce-Smith, Del Milfay, Pam Fisher, Fred Martin, Dr. Marianne Jones, Errol Wisham, Susan McIntyre, Laura Aguelos, Virginia Wright, Tom Purvis, Officer Kelly Dunn, and of course, uh, Helena Brooke and her staff. I'd like to thank each and every one of you for your participation this evening in this very special hearing. I'd like to make sure that the things that were said this evening reach the ears of those who are in office at this moment, those who control the purse strings, those who make the decisions to make these cuts, we have let you hear from first-hand responders, from those who are on the ground, from those professionals who have the experience in dealing with those people who are in crisis. We have heard from the public this evening passionate testimony regarding how services help out you know, and why we need to continue with services. So with that, I'd like to thank you all for coming. And again, we have openings on the Middle Health Board. So I hope you'll grab some of our flyers and get in touch with our staff to uh, explore the possibility of being able to sit here and make changes happen. The, the uh, Middle Health Board has done absolutely fantastic things by bringing like the Mental Health Services Act money 
into the uh, state of California down to the San Francisco County and sort of bypassing some steps and getting it directly on the ground. We've had hearings like this, and we are more than happy to uh, have more members come up. So with that, um, do I have a motion to adjourn? else who has a comment? Maybe there's some people who didn't put in. Uh, we're, uh, we've closed public comment. Um, I think I had a, from um, Dr. Marianne Jones, do I have a second? Second. Uh, from Officer Kelly Dunn. Uh, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you.